the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. They have massive, massive control. They're not insane at all. They do insane things, but they're not insane. And so they have massive control and they're capable enough of keeping families and keeping jobs. And the, those are the guys that are extremely dangerous because they don't get caught. They only get caught because like, DNA and people have been looking and hunting them for 30 or 40 years and that's why they're not getting caught because they 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 don't ramp up to the level of a Bundy or something like they they have control Welcome to the first degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Lingletter and far away from Billy Jensen And today is such an important episode of The First Degree because it is our 100th episode. We made it to 100, guys. I'm not sure how we did it, but here we are on the other side of 100. Fantastic. How did we never miss an episode? I don't know how we've made it through with all of our episodes on time, except for I think one was a little bit late. One was like six hours late, but mm-hmm. even if it's just like two hours late because there's other people involved in this process, it was then delayed like half a day, but honestly, no one cared. It was during the COVID shutdown. What are you like well, looking at your watches waiting for it to drop? I don't think so. <laughs> Give us it's some fine. slack. You got it on the right day. What are you going <laughs> to, what, what can we do? Yeah. I'm really excited about today's episode because for today's landmark 100th episode. We have something very, very, very special and very kind of big for all of you. And we are so excited about it. And I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to give any more away, but you guys are going to be stoked on today's first degree. Before we jump into the episode, we have something very important. And that is, what is the day, Billy? It's National Gummy Worms Day. Oh my God. No. No fails. Try again. There's better ones. National Respect Canada Day. And I certainly respect Canada now more than ever. More than ever. But that also wasn't it. There is is one I'm staring at here, Billy, that you're not getting to. National Pet Fire Safety Day? Nope. Because it's a dog? Nope. National Be a Dork Day. National Orange Chicken Day. Ooh. Right? I love right? some General Sows. Yeah, General I Sow. just love like a classic orange chicken from Panda Express. I mean, I probably should mm. never eat that, and I haven't eaten it in probably 15 years, but <laughs> there's just... Boy, do I like it. Boy, do I crave it. When I was... You yeah. know what? No. You, you, I, let me say this. You probably have had it because I know the, the way that you like to eat. You've probably gone, and you know how at some malls that they mm-hmm. will have somebody with a sample. A sample. And you love those, you love just like a little nibble. Yep. You have probably had it within the last 15 years. I probably have. And you know what is not going to happen anymore are samples. And that really yeah. grinds my gears because all I do want is one piece of orange chicken. And now I'm bummed because I'm going to have to buy a whole meal. So, well, you know, that's enough of that. Uh, so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. case brings us back to January 15th of 1974. And if you're listening to this episode live on release day, we can tell you it's been exactly 46 years, six months, and 11 days since this significant day. The movie Blazing Saddles was in theaters and songs Time in a Bottle by Jim Croce and The Joker by Steve Miller Band were topping the charts. And the setting for today's case is Wichita, Kansas. That's the largest city in the state of Kansas and the 51st largest city in the United States. Geographically speaking, Wichita is located in south-central Kansas, nestled against the Arkansas River. And Wichita is the birthplace of both Pizza Hut and White Castle, 
making it a fast food wonderland of sorts. And another thing that this fine city produced was the outlaw William H. Bonney, also known as Billy the Kid. Wichita, Kansas has many suburban neighborhoods, the kind of neighborhoods that are perfect for raising a family. And that's exactly where Joseph Otero and his wife, Julie, planted their roots and decided to raise their children. This family consisted of 38-year-old dad, Joseph Otero, 34-year-old mom, Julie Otero, and the Otero children, 9-year-old Joseph Jr., 11-year-old Josephine, 13-year-old Carmen, 14-year-old Danny, and 15-year-old Charlie. It's a big wonderful family. And on this particular morning of January 15th, matriarch Julie woke her children up for school at around 7 a.m. The older kids were running late and left for school with their dad at 7.50 a.m. And as Joseph was pulling out of the family's garage to leave, driving his children, his son Charlie started to close the garage door as the car was pulling out. But Joseph stopped him and told him to leave it open because he was returning right after he drove the kids to school. So Charlie obliged. She listened to his dad. He got back in the car and off they went. School proceeded as normal for the kids. And at the end of the day, the three older children walked home. And it's not clear whether the children normally walked home. But what we do know is that at the time, the Otero family only had one working vehicle because their other car had been in an accident and was at the shop being repaired. When the kids got home, they couldn't open the front door. So Danny went around to the back and he tried to get the back door open, but that was locked too. So Danny goes back around to the front of the house and he somehow manages to unlock the front door. Once they were inside, the first thing the children saw was the contents of their mom's purse spilled out onto the living room floor. They look to the kitchen and they see their father's wallet on the stove. A child's lunchbox was on the kitchen table. Josephine and Joseph Jr.'s winter coats were on the living room couch, and an open loaf of bread, a knife, and several jars of sandwich bread were on the kitchen table. Some of the pieces of the bread were slathered with mayo, and some weren't, and it was kind of as if somebody had been interrupted when they were making their sandwiches. And there was also a gallon of milk left out next to the kitchen sink. Next to the half-made sandwiches, there was an open can of pears. One of the chairs at the kitchen table was pulled out, And there was a pair of men's shoes under the chair. The three kids knew something was just off, and they walked around looking for a sign of either their mom, their dad, or their two younger siblings. They went upstairs towards the master bedroom, and that's where they made a horrifying discovery. They saw their parents' lifeless bodies. The frantic children attempted to cut the rope from around their mom's neck and the ropes around their father's wrists. They removed the gag from their mom's mouth with a set of toenail clippers and tried to revive her. Danny then went to get a knife to try to cut the ropes off of his father's hands. And there was also a belt around his father's throat, which he loosened. And he then tried to revive him, but his father's chest was just very stiff. Danny ran to the phone to call for help. But when he picked up the receiver, the line was dead. So he darted out of the house, found a neighbor, and they called the police. When the police arrived at the scene, it was 3.40 p.m., and they were met by Charlie, who was just completely distraught. He told them that his parents were inside, they were in their bedroom, and they were tied up. The police told his three children to stay outside and to stay calm and tried to comfort them. Police entered the home, and it was neat. It was orderly. The only thing out of place that stuck out to them initially was this dumped out purse on the floor and this wallet on the stove. And obviously these things in the kitchen, which made it seem like somebody had been interrupted making lunch for these children. Officers moved through the house towards the master bedroom. They pushed the door open and approached Joseph Sr., who was clearly deceased and lying on the floor of the master bedroom. Their eyes then moved to a piece of white rope and a large butcher knife that laid next to him. Julie Otero was on the bed. Her legs were hanging off the side, slightly bent. Julie was wearing blue jeans and a house coat. Her feet were bound at the ankles. She had indentations around her neck, and there was one piece of rope tied to the north corner of the bed. There was blood around her nose and around her mouth. Neither Julie or Joseph had a pulse. Julie's hands were still tied behind her back, and there was a white gag right next to her head, which was stained with her blood. And when Charlie, Danny, and Carmen, their three children, were questioned by arriving officers, they told them that they lived at this home with their parents and their two 
little siblings, Josephine and Joseph Jr., and they didn't know where they were. The older siblings became distraught over the idea of having to tell the babies of the family that their parents had been killed, but that was something that they'd never actually have to do because the reality of the nightmare that was unfolding in real time that morning was about to get so much worse than anyone on the scene could have imagined. Inside the home, one of the officers was attempting to clear the house room by room, making sure the perpetrator who attacked Julie and Joseph Sr. were no longer on the premises. And it's in an upstairs bedroom that this officer surely made one of the most horrific and haunting discoveries of his entire life. The room he entered was clearly the bedroom of two children. There were bunk beds and boys' toys everywhere. And in the center of the floor was the lifeless body of Joseph Otero Jr., He was wearing his school clothes, a long-sleeved button-up shirt, jeans, and socks. And we aren't going to describe his injuries because Joseph Jr. was nine years old, and we're not here to describe injuries inflicted on children in a gratuitous or graphic detail. But it wouldn't be long before a fourth horrifying discovery in this home was about to be made. As the search of the home continued, one of the officers descended the stairs to the basement. And it was there that they found the body of 11-year-old Josephine. Like in the case of Joseph Jr., we're not going to discuss her injuries or the circumstances under which her life was cruelly taken. As news of the massacre spread, to say the community was shocked, devastated, horrified, doesn't begin to describe the kind of impact a crime like this has on a neighborhood. And many of the most grizzled police officers will never see examples of such cruelty across 30-year careers. The Otero home was sealed off, and law enforcement set up a command post at an old school across the street from the house. It was revealed that the family's brown 1968 Vista Cruiser station wagon was missing from the garage, but it was found later that same day in the parking lot of a grocery store. Then the search for the person who slaughtered this family commenced. And the thing is, is that no one on the scene that day realized that this search would be one that would stretch over more than three decades. Because the murder of this family would be the first four murders of 10 that terrorized and continue to haunt the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, to this day. The Otero home was searched for evidence and processed, and here's what they found. All four members of the Otero family had died by asphyxiation as a result of strangulation. The phone lines had been cut to eliminate the risk of one of the victims calling for help. None of the victims had been raped but there was semen on the floor of the basement near where Josephine was found. Nothing of value was missing, and the police believed trophies were likely to be taken from the scene, but it was really hard to be sure at the time. And bindings and gags were used during the murders. The police worked to flesh out the killer's M.O. in this case. But hindsight is twenty-twenty. Looking from today, we can see the patterns. But after the Otero case... There wasn't an established M.O. yet because this was a serial killer's first taste of murder. But with each kill, this killer's M.O. would become more and more defined. Bindings were used to restrain the victims. Torture. Victims were killed over long periods of time and tormented throughout the experience, both psychologically and with physical pain. And then finally, kill their lives choked out of them by asphyxiation. The perpetrator in this case was an organized killer, made evident by the fact that clear planning went into the ambush of this family. The cutting of the phone lines, bringing Bindems with him to the scene. A tactical approach which allowed him to get them under his control. This killer would eventually name himself BTK, a killer motivated by sexual sadism. And while none of his victims were sexually penetrated, we know that killing aroused him, proven by the fact that there was semen found in the basement of the Otero home near Josephine's body. BTK had an obsession with bondage. All of his victims were killed by strangulation except for one, and that was only because he was interrupted during the commission of the act. Joseph Jr., Joseph Sr., Julie, and Josephine would be the first known victims of one of the most, if not the most, terrifying serial killers in modern history. Dennis Rader, BTK, 
a man who didn't care how old a victim was, didn't care what sex a victim was, a man who blamed his depraved crimes on an indescribable force he called Factor X, a man who killed 10 people over the course of decades while maintaining the image of a loving father, a church deacon, a dog catcher, a Boy Scout leader, and a doting husband. So how, I mean, really, how can someone capable of crime so unspeakable actually maintain a perceived sense of normalcy? How can a dichotomy like this exist, I mean, really exist within one person? Well, to answer that, who better to help us deconstruct the mind of Dennis Rader than one of his own children? Meet our first degree, Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie. Well, I mean, my dad was pretty much my best friend. So I did everything with him. I gardened with him. We took walks with the dogs. We were very, very close. Um, I was much closer to him than my mom in a lot of ways. I pretty much hated that I couldn't be a Boy Scout. That was like the one thing I couldn't do with him. Like anybody that knew my parents or knew my family before my dad's arrest knew that he treated us really well, that he was like an upstanding guy in the community. And you know, they were all as, as shocked as us. It's just anybody that's met us after that are like, don't necessarily believe us, but we were really close. Like we, he, my dad really liked to be outdoors. So he would take us fishing and camping. And my mom, my mom hates the outdoors. Like she's only outside to go to a car, literally like she hates outdoors. So I don't even know how they ended up married. They're like yin and yang, but he, from when I was tiny, like there's photos of us fishing, like he, anything he was doing, he took me and my older brother along. He raised me basically like a tomboy. That's why one of the reasons I'm really strong, he taught me to be strong. Like, I think he knew maybe things would catch up with him eventually, but he raised me to be very strong in a lot of ways. Carrie was born in Park City, Kansas in 1978, which was four years after her father started killing. And from Carrie's perspective, she was raised by two loving parents and had a generally healthy childhood. And as Carrie said, she and her dad had one of those really special bonds, and they ended up sharing these interests that even Carrie's mom didn't approve of, that they kind of kept between them. I had grown up reading Stephen King, loving him, sharing him with my dad. Like, we would watch all the movies together. We would pass the books back and forth. And I'm not talking about, like, my teenage years or my adult years. I'm saying, like, by the time I was, like, 10 or 11 I was reading Stephen King like my mom didn't like it and my dad and I it was it was something we shared and like other like like kiss the girls and you know we went and saw seven together just to explain some of our relationship so like I think my dad in hindsight was trying to tell me a little bit about himself but he also like appreciated that I liked that stuff with him but I think he was also trying to educate me and prepare me In 2005, Carrie learned that the man she knew as dad was one of the world's most notorious sexual thrill killers in modern history. And she remained silent on the subject for nearly 15 years. She avoided the media and worked tirelessly to process the absolutely consuming trauma that this information brought onto her. And while the pain that followed was varied and vast, over the years, there's one particular aspect of Carrie's experience that remains ever frustrating. I get pushed back a lot from the detective that I'm still close to. He, he, when I'm having a hard time, I'll reach out. We don't talk very often, but he, he likes to remind me, he'll say flat out, your dad was never your dad every day of your life. That's a lie. And I'm like, thanks buddy. Like, that's not what I need right now, dude. So if you talk to criminologists, you talk to detectives, you know, FBI and stuff, they're all very hardened. And the thing is, like, they get it wrong. And people, even like the really highly educated, hardened ones, they don't believe me. I don't think people want to accept that somebody could be so good at times and also be so bad. They can't, they can't. And and even like the criminologists, they refuse to believe it. And so somebody like, the detective argues he was just showing you what he thought dad looked like, but that he didn't actually have empathy and he didn't have love. And there's, and because he's a sexual sadistic psychopath, they're saying he can't love. And I'm saying he can do both. In the world of criminal profiling, for many decades, there were certain aspects of serial offenders that were thought to be universally shared amongst them. Characteristics that were rarely if ever, 
deviated from. We've seen this in the concept of a serial killer's ability to stop killing victims. And for a long time, it was thought that they couldn't stop once they started. This was considered fact when it came to the world of psychology and profiling serial killers. But in the last two decades, we've seen one example after the next where these assumptions are shattered, leaving profilers scratching their heads and rewriting the books. Another assumption, and one we're looking at very closely today, is this all-or-nothing concept of empathy, or in the case of serial killers, lack thereof. They say a man can't be a sociopath and also, at the same time, feel genuine love or compassion for members of his family. The question here is, is it arrogant to believe that with all of the incredible nuance that exists within the human brain, that we can determine with absolution that we know how Dennis Rader's brain works? Could Dennis Rader be one of the first serial killers who defies this generalization we assign to serial killers? Well, there's only one way to answer that question. We need to go back to the beginning. Dennis Rader was born on March 9th of 1945, and he was born to William and Dorothea Rader, and he was the oldest of four children. He was born in Pittsburgh, Kansas, but he grew up in Wichita proper. He attended Riverview School and later graduated from Wichita Heights High School. And when people look back and study the childhood of serial killers, they're really searching for indicators of trauma that could explain how and why the wires got crossed in their adolescent brain. But sometimes there's just no satisfying answer to be found. Here's the thing. He has three younger brothers. My uncles are amazing. His parents, Bill and Dorothea, I was very close to them. Like they were amazing grandparents. They raised all of us grandkids. We did a ton of stuff together. You know, there, I can't personally find anything there, but then my dad hints at things like, again, is he just making crap up? My dad has read so much like before he was arrested and after about people like him, you take like my dad admired HH Holmes and wanted to build like something like Holmes had. So, or like, um, Jack the Ripper, like my dad was obsessed with these people. So the thing is, if you, my dad has read so much, sometimes he gets his own wires crossed. What's him and what's somebody else. My dad's hinted at some things. Like my dad said that he watched my, his grandparents out in the country in Kansas, you know, kill some chickens for dinner. And that had turned him on when he was like four and everybody's like, I don't think a four-year-old would be turned on by some chickens. Like they would be traumatized. But like, you know, to me, it seems like either it's bullcrap or basically on some poetry and things my dad's hinted at. My guess is that maybe he was sexually abused by like a distant relative or a stranger when he was little. That's because he was separated quite a while from his parents over the summer. My grandma was working, I think. And so there was that opportunity there. I mean, unfortunately, everybody that would know is dead and my dad's not talking. My dad would never, never cop to being abused or being weak. And so something could have happened. My dad doesn't even know. But I, I've tried. I've gone. I've looked at things. I've tried. I can't find it. And while there may be nothing concrete in Raider's formative years, once he was a little older, he did engage in some of the telltale criminal activities that tend to escalate within future serial offenders. But he says he was basically looking, being a peeping Tom, stealing underwear, you know, looking at, looking at like those detective magazines they had in like the forties that were really graphic, you know, even like the ones where people were actually being murdered in the photographs. Like he, so he was a young kid somehow exposed to that. So like, where did he get those magazines? You know, plus it was the 40s, so he was allowed to run around and do whatever he wanted. Nobody was keeping an eye on him. And so some, I don't know where he got the magazines at. I was going to say, by the time he was like 10 or 12, he was doing breaking and enterings, like into his old school, he says. And it's worth mentioning, even if something had been overtly or clearly wrong with Dennis Rader as a kid by today's standards, the 40s and 50s were such a different time. Back then, you were either crazy enough to be put into an insane asylum or not. Awareness about more subtle traits of mental illness back then 
was basically non-existent. Nowadays, if somebody was doing what my dad was doing, we would call it a conduct disorder and they would go get help or they would be put in juvie, right? It just escalate because no one, because back then nobody was aware and they were, they weren't insane. They're not insane. They have massive, massive control. They're not insane at all. They do insane things, but they're not insane. And so they have massive control and they're capable enough of keeping families and keeping jobs. And those are the guys that are extremely dangerous because they don't get caught. They only get caught because like (laughs) DNA and people have been looking and hunting them for 30 or 40 years. And that's why they're not getting caught because they, they, they don't ramp up to the level of a Bundy or something like they, they have control. In 1957, Dennis Rader was confirmed into the Zion Lutheran Church. And following his high school graduation, he enlisted in the Air Force and served from 1966 to 1970. And it's becoming less and less surprising to hear that serial killers have spent time in the military, but it does make sense. You're trained to think tactically. You're taught to be regimented militant and to be careful. And you're also taught how to inflict violence. So later in his serial killer career, Dennis Rader took impeccable notes, and the reason behind this is up for debate, but it's one example of his precision, his malicious nature, characteristics that bled into his murders and into his MO. And Dennis Rader was stationed around the world, including countries like Greece, Turkey, Japan, and South Korea. By 1971, Dennis Rader was back in Kansas, and he lived at 6220 Independence in Park City. He worked in the meat department at a place called Leakers, where his mother worked as a bookkeeper. On May 22, 1971, Dennis Rader married Paula Dietz, who was a former classmate of Rader's from high school. And at the time, she was working as a secretary at the local hospital. Later that same year, he enrolled at the Butler County Community College. In 1972, Rader left his job at Leakers to work for the Coleman Company, a business that produced camping gear as an assembler. And at a glance, this job seems pretty menial, but the significance of this particular job wouldn't be known until decades later when Rader was outed as BTK, because two women who worked there would become his victims too. By 1973, Rader finished up his time at Butler Community College with an associate's degree in electronics, and then he enrolls at Wichita State University. After graduating with a degree in criminal justice, irony, Rader left his job at the Coleman Company and began working at ADT. Now, ADT is the security company I'm sure you've heard about across many podcasts. At ADT, he held several positions, including installation manager, which means he would have to go into people's houses and set up all of the equipment. And it's believed that he learned how to defeat home security systems while there. And while his time at the Coleman Company was now over, it seemed that Rader still kept an eye on two former employees of that company. One of those employees was Julio Otero, who we told you about at the top of the show. And the other one was Catherine Bright. Let's fast forward to the following year. It's now April 4th of 1974 when Officer Dennis Landon of the Wichita Police Department was dispatched to 2317 East 17th Street at 2.05 p.m. Officers had been called to the scene after receiving a report of a possible shooting when two men saw someone run out of a home covered in blood. The man had been shot in the head, and as he ran from the house, he was yelling, He's now in there doing a number on my sister. And when Officer Landon arrived, there was no sign of this man because the men who called the police had left to rush the injured man to the hospital. Not knowing immediately what he was dealing with, Officer Landon cautiously approached the house. He knocked on the screen door and slowly pushed it open. Officer Landon received no response when he called out asking if anyone was home. Then, down a hall and through windows that faced onto a back patio area, he could see that there was a young female lying in a pool of blood. He ran to her side. She had blood on her face, on her hands, in her hair, and there was a pool of blood forming underneath her waist. 
She also had a severe nosebleed. She was clutching a telephone in her left hand. The young woman appeared to be in her early 20s, and while she was in bad shape, she was still alive, so there was hope. Officer Landon asked her what happened, who had done this to her, and she could hardly muster the breath to respond, but she did lift up her blouse, exposing her abdomen, which was riddled with stab wounds. He then asked her if she knew her attacker. She shook her head no. When asked if she could ID her attacker, she again shook her head no. But one thing she could do when asked was tell Officer Landon her name. It was Catherine Bright. She was 21 years old. And it was at this point that Catherine started to lose consciousness. The officer then ran to the kitchen to get a cloth to help stop her bleeding. He applied as much pressure as he could to try to hamper her loss of blood. Catherine had a piece of rope tied around her neck. She had a blood-stained rag in her right hand. She had nylon stockings binding her ankles. And she asked the officer to untie her legs and whispered that she couldn't breathe. The officer pulled out a pocket knife and cut the nylons off of her legs. And he tried to keep her calm and told her and assured her that an ambulance would be there any second just to hang on. But her pupils slowly started dilating. Catherine's skin became cold. It became clammy. And she slowly drifted off into unconsciousness as the ambulance arrived and rushed her to the hospital. The house was searched from top to bottom. In the living room just past the front door, there was a small green table. Underneath, the officer noticed a small bag with the contents strewn on the floor. The radio in the living room was on and crackled in the background. In Catherine's bedroom, there was a green dresser. The top drawer was ajar and was filled with women's underwear. The telephone in this bedroom had been disconnected from the wall, and the radio in this room was on as well. Near the closet, there were two shirts tied to a nightgown, and the nightgown was covered with blood. And the officers could see something white contrasted against the blood on the nightgown. It was two human teeth. A red piece of fabric was tied to the bed. A green piece was then tied to that. As the police continued to look around the bedroom, they observed this turquoise chair with nylon stockings tied to each arm and a large pool of blood on the seat. There was a bathroom that connected to this bedroom, and when police peered inside, they could see a bullet hole consistent with a small caliber handgun. There was a second hole in the linoleum tile bathroom floor. Bullet fragments were also present on this floor. And from everything the police had seen and observed so far, they deduced that Catherine's brother had likely walked into the home as his sister was being attacked. The perpetrator was likely spooked, shot Catherine's brother, then hastily stabbed Catherine to death before he left. And the scene was processed and police learned that the pickup truck that belonged to Catherine's father was missing. And it was found eastbound down the street on the same street of this home. And inside of the truck, there was a piece of cord that had been stained with blood. There was also a stocking cap that presumably this perpetrator had worn. Officers were then sent to the Wesley Medical Center to speak with 19-year-old Kevin Bright, who was Catherine's brother. When they arrived, they learned that Kevin had been shot twice in the head, and he also had had a white cord tied around his neck. And one gunshot blast was to his upper right lip, and the second was to his right forehead. And thank goodness this was a small caliber weapon because otherwise he most certainly would not have lived through these injuries. At the hospital, doctors counted five stab wounds in Catherine's abdomen. She'd also been stabbed twice in the back. And doctors did everything they could to try to save her, but she didn't pull through surgery. Kevin struggled to relay to officers what had happened and what he had seen, but his speech was interrupted several times due to him choking up blood. But eventually he was able to give a clear statement. Kevin Bright said that he had stayed over at his sister's house the night before the attack due to the snowfall they had received that day. They ran some errands, and when they returned to the house at 12.30 p.m., the brother and sister had been confronted by a white male with a gun. He forced them into a bedroom. He told them that he was from California and he had no intention of hurting them. All he needed was a car and some money to get to New York. 
The man ordered Kevin and Catherine into a bedroom. Kevin was forced to tie up his sister with her wrist behind her back. He was then tied up himself and moved into the other bedroom. Then the man put on a pair of nylon stockings around Kevin's neck. Kevin believed that this man was about to strangle him to death, so he struggled until he was loose and started trying to fight back. And that's when the attacker shot him twice in the head before kicking him several times to quote-unquote make sure he was dead. Kevin never lost consciousness, but was bleeding profusely and in shock. He could hear his sister crying out in pain from the other room. Catherine's autopsy revealed that her cause of death was due to her stab wounds as well as strangulation. She had been choked so hard that her larynx had been severely damaged. She had deep ligature marks on her neck, on her wrists, and on her ankles, and she had bruises and hemorrhages all over her face from being severely beaten as well. Kevin Bright was badly wounded, and a neurologist performed emergency surgery to remove the bullet from his head and ultimately his brain. A metal plate was inserted into his skull. One of the wounds he sustained forced the removal of three teeth. The surgeries were grueling, but he did survive, and he's the only person known to have ever lived to tell of a BTK attack. Kevin described this assailant as 25 years old, 5 feet 11 inches, 180 pounds with a stocky build and a mustache. He was wearing a black stocking cap, a windbreaker, an army coat with fur around the hood, and a silver wristwatch on his left arm. The man was also wearing gloves, and he was sweating profusely as the attack unfolded. And so, again, my father's MO was strangulation for nine of the ten cases. and would have been in the tenth. He just got interrupted, so he used a knife. But um, that was my father's MO. He was 30 years and murdered 10, including two children. He didn't rape, but, he, I mean, he murdered two kids and took out a family and murdered seven women after that. So he basically... You know, he switched to just women because he realized it was kind of hard to murder men. I mean, that's how how cold my father can be. It would be a while before the police would connect Catherine's murder to the Otero family slaying. At this point, there was no reason to suspect a serial killer. So many things about these two encounters have been different. There were children involved in the Otero killings, for one. There was a gun used to assault Kevin Bright. Catherine had been stabbed. The victimology was all over the place. And the only similarities were there were bindings found on the wrists of all of the victims. And also, both Catherine and Julie's purses had been dumped out. And not to mention, a troubled young man had confessed the Otero killings and implicated two of his friends. And in the 70s, this completely eliminated the possibility that these cases could be connected at all. And adding to the horror of BTK's murders was his constant toying with authorities. This guy loved a cat and mouse situation. And his first contact with police started with an engineering textbook at the public library. Right, because seven months after Catherine Bright's murder on October 22nd of 1974, Don Granger of the Wichita Eagle and Beacon newspaper received a telephone call from an anonymous man claiming that information regarding the Otero family murders could be found in a book in the Wichita Public Library. This man immediately called the police to let them know about this call he just received because it is jarring. And in a book called Applied Engineering Mechanics, the police found a two-page type document. And within this document included a statement of responsibility for the Otero murders, an attempt to explain a motivation and rationale for committing said murders, and a codename of BTK, derived from the words bind them, torture them, kill them. The purpose of this letter was clear, to taunt law enforcement. The letter stated the following. I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. End quote. The man who scripted this letter provided gruesome details only the killer would know. The police said that these descriptions were incredibly detailed down to the location of specific pieces of furniture. Law enforcement guessed that the killer must have stood over the bodies to take notes, or sketched his handiwork, or worse, he had taken photos. The letter continued, 
quote, I'm sorry this happens to society. They are the ones who suffer the most. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up. When this monster enters my brain, I will never know. But it's here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help, that you've killed four people, they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. The letter continues, quote, I can't stop it so the monster goes on and hurts me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at times by daydreams of some victims being torture and some being mine. It's a big, complicated game, my friend, of the monster plays. Putting victims' numbers down, following them, checking up on them, waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting. The pressure is great, and sometimes he runs the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim or victims. I don't know who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know. But it's too late. Good luck hunting. Yours truly, guiltily. The letter was not signed, but there was a postscript. Quote, P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O., or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, kill them. B-T-K. You see it here again. They will be on the next victim. And you can see where he switches. Like, if you go look at him in trial, you can see where he switches. Um, It's not even really like that there's two people in him. He's one person, and he's not insane. He's not schizophrenic he's not bipolar it's more that he call, he calls it cubing that he just it's like a dice and he just flips what side he shows you so that he's always dennis he's always btk he's always daddy he's just flipping what i told you about like flipping that uniform or that mask of what he wants to mirror like what you're expecting and so he that's how he explains it You know, one detective said he thinks 90% of my dad is BTK and 10% is Dennis Rader. And I argue 90% is dad, but that's because that's who I know. And if I had ever met BTK, if my family had ever met BTK, we wouldn't be alive. One of the things that I found that was interesting is we've heard this so many times. I'm not going to hurt you. I just need money for my car uh, to go someplace. And we know we heard that with Zodiac, and we know we heard that with uh, with GSK. Yeah, he said my van. I need I need gas for my van. Is what he said. And then and then at uh, Lake Berryessa, Zodiac said the same thing. You know, something like I'm not going to hurt you. I just need need to get out of here. I need money for, for a car. So I think it's just, it's strange how this guy knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to kill them. And, um, uh, he just did it anyway. You know, you know what I mean? They're just giving that, that example of, uh, uh, you know, I, I I'm not going to hurt you. I just need money for gas comes up in three famous serial killers. Yeah, but it, it's it makes a lot of sense because like it's in those mom- pivotal moments that he's getting control. He just needs them tied up. At that point, yeah. it's two verse one. So you just want to calm people down. And what they always tell women to do: if you're being robbed, give your purse up. Don't fight. Just let them do it. Like that's what we're all told to do. Don't fight back. Just let them rob you, and they'll leave. So he's right. trying to put them at ease until they're in bindings and then the terrorizing starts. It- no, you're exactly right. And, and you hit the nail on the head too, because it is two against one. It's yeah. And Lake Berryessa too with Zodiac. That's 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 two against one. He has to get control of the situation and he's just got to say, listen, I'm just going to tie you up. That's it. Just going to tie you up. And then he starts. He wants, he wants, he wants to just be in slight control. And then he, and, and also it's probably such 
uh, a thrill for him to see them like relaxed and not that scared. Like this is a robbery. It'll be over soon. We can mm-hmm. replace this stuff to like, oh my God, this isn't a robbery. You know what I mean? Like that, that yes. like uh, sort of juxtaposition is probably very exciting for him. Well, and also it's like you, well, two things. One, he probably only needs a couple seconds of time for somebody to relax, like you were saying, to kind of get in his situation where he can bind them up without too much of a struggle. And then also, yeah, like you were saying, it's just like there's the thrill of them kind of letting their guard down. And if you're in sort of a fight or flight situation and you would just try to fight or fight back or run away, if you think it is, if this person is actually attacking you, maybe you would kind of let your guard down and be like, oh, okay, well, if I just comply to what he's doing, he'll leave me alone at some point. Yeah. Well, and one of the yeah, biggest things that serial killers sort of universally say, it's like the, the terror is is big for them. So when they when he shot when he surprises them when he ambushes them in their own home, there's terror. If somebody's in your home, I mean, after we did the BTK uh, the the Golden State Killer show, I, I imagined someone in my home all the time thinking about that. And like, there's nothing scarier. So he's already got them ter- terrorized, and it's like, but he wants to bring them back down to calm and then up again because it's like. He likes to control like his fix that he's getting from this, which is like terror. I mean, it's part of torture. He wanted torture in his moniker because that is what he's getting. He doesn't rape. He doesn't penetrate. He gets off on the fear of controlling people who are at his will. And it's a huge part of it. So I think putting them at ease to just bring them back up to like fight or flight is just part of his little games. Yeah. Mm. And remember what they say, though, if if you're being robbed, you take your wallet or your purse and you throw it and then you look the other way. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Another interesting thing, too, that I I think we wanted to bring up is that his um, writing of the letter, it's the first letter he's ever done. And he did it on the heels of three young people falsely confessing to being involved in the Otero murder. So what do we make of it's like somebody was stealing his glory and he had to intervene. Yeah. I mean, obviously knowing what we know about BTK, he loves the attention. He loves the chase. Like he thrives off of that cat cat and mouse kind of a game. And in my mind seeing, you know, he writes this letter right after somebody else confesses to the crime and is getting probably all this press, all this attention. There's, probably a huge part of them that's totally fucking jealous and wants that attention back on him. So he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to rewrite the story. I'm going to give you all this other information. So you know that I'm the one that fucking did it. And it's so sick and disgusting, but so textbook for him. No, and it's textbook. And it, and it, who knows? It might be his downfall. (laughs) Yeah. Who knows? Oh, no one knows what happens. We know. Okay. (laughs) It's his fatal flaw, and every yeah. serial killer has one. His is like Bundy's was lack of impulse control. BTK's was just fucking glaring narcissism. Narcissism. Uh, D'Angelo's was such a pristine mo that it was identifiable even without DNA. Like, w- there's a reason he's been charged with so many crimes, even though there's not DNA. It's because he was so militant that every crime was so specific that even just circumstantially you can connect him to all this shit. Like everybody's got one. In today's episode, we discuss the first five murders attributed to BTK. At this point within BTK's career of killing, Carrie hadn't even been born yet, but fatherhood would not soften Dennis Rader's urge to kill. He refined his techniques. He refined his MO and he got better and more resourceful in concealing his secret double life. Next week on part two, we'll take you through the remainder of BTK's murders and examine the narcissism-fueled correspondence that BTK continued to initiate with police, which would ultimately be his undoing. All right, well, this is obviously one of the most infamous cases in 
the world, but we always want to tell the untold stories. So if you have a story you would like to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time and stick around because we're going to kill some time and reminisce about the last hundred episodes. Remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But But not not that that close. Happy coming Orange Day. No, Orange Chicken Day. Orange Chicken Day. General Sows for life. That's not Orange Chicken. chicken Yes, it is. Is it? Oh, is it sweet and sour? General Sows is a different type of chicken. Sources for today's episode include court documents, the Wichita Eagle, Kansas.com, the LA Times, and as always, our first three guest is always our largest source. All right. Well, welcome to a very special episode of Killing Time. It's our one hundred anniversary episode. Well, I don't know if this is really an anniversary. It's just it a milestone. An anniversary. And I'm telling you, I did not think I would make it this long. I thought I would die long before this. <laughs> just in general, it, death. Yeah. Like yes. a human death. Exactly. Um, it's, this is crazy. That means we've only almost been doing this for two years, guys. I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It's been like really fast and so fucking eternal all at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels like two decades. Yeah. I know. I can't really remember a time where, well, I really can't remember a time where I didn't know Alexis, but I know not can't remember a time where I haven't known you, Billy. You just are such a big part of my life now. Oh. Thank you, Jack. Take it easy, Billy. Uh-huh. <laughs> And by Billy, the way, what Billy, I, I could do with a little less of Billy Jensen, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> when I when I went to um when I went back home uh, to Phoenix, I had four copies of uh, How to Be a Lady from all different independent booksellers that I had to open. So that's so nice because that's yes. not the title of the book. <laughs> what was it? Act like what, a lady. Act like a lady. Yeah, believe me. Yeah, you, you really you clearly opened it, Philly. Yeah, I, right. Clearly, you clearly un- from fun- unwrapped it from you the pull- package it came in. I, yeah, and I was going to send it. Honestly, I was going to send it to my two nieces, who I don't really talk to that often. And then I thought against it, but I gave it to Zoe. So Zoe has. has you don't want to be the creepy uncle who doesn't talk exactly. to the, the nieces <laughs> and then sends a random how to be a lady book. <laughs> It, with exactly. like tales of sex and lots of penises yeah, be, and the cover has vaginas on it. Like that's yes. a weird book to get from your uncle. That's and why you know, I didn't, you know but Billy, I did give it to my daughter. You know, <laughs> and you know, Billy's the creepy uncle. Cause like, what else would he be? Look, he's just like, by looks alone. You know what? You yeah. have no idea what the other uncles look like. So they're I probably the accountant. They're probably normal, normal uncle. Yeah, yeah, and these in your I don't know how young your nieces are, but they're probably Slenderman age. So they probably see the resemblance and are like, ah, my they're Slenderman. Like 20, uncle. They're 21 years old. Oh, that's <laughs> close, right. yeah. close enough. Okay, well, anyways. <laughs> the point of this episode, or the point of killing time today, is we're gonna just take a look back on the first degree and really reminisce about the highs, the lows, the beginnings you know, the friends, the memories. So I think a good thing that we could do right now is just take it back to the very beginning and recording our very first episode and how terrified I was to do that. You know, it's surprisingly good considering we didn't know what we were doing yet. We didn't, uh, the format wasn't fully thought out. We, um, I mean, the format and the podcast itself, I mean, it was kind of born by the fact that you and I first each had first degree stories. And that's what now right. we call them first degree stories. But before we used to just call it, oh, yeah, I knew someone who murdered somebody or I knew someone, you know, and it fucks you up a little bit, especially as a kid. Right. And yeah, I mean, I just I do love the organic nature of how we came up with the concept and how it's evolved 
over the last two years because it really it's it's a completely different podcast now in a in a great way. It's like matured with us. Right. And I think it's so crazy that, you know, when we first started the podcast, we were grasping at straws of stories to do. And our podcast isn't like any other true crime podcast. We can't just like pick and choose what stories we're going to do and make it like the craziest, twisty, turny kind of story. We rely completely on our first degree guests. So it's crazy to think about where it started from and the stories that we kind of did in the beginning and where we are now that, I mean, our 100 episode is BTK. Like you can't get any more prolific than that story. So it's really, it's a kind of a cool full circle moment, I think. Yeah. It's just a matter of that. I think probably maybe 98% or 97% of the ones that we've done have been from listeners coming to us. Mm -hmm. I think we might've had some opportunities where I've met somebody or Alexis has met somebody. And then we, we broached that sub, Hey, we've got this podcast. Would you want to come on it? But for the most part, it's, you know, for a large majority of it, like you said, we can't just go out and pick the most kind of outlandish story. They're all coming from the listeners. And both of you guys, I mean, can attest to this. Like, you can't just find somebody that knows somebody that was a murderer and then they're going to talk about it. Like, it's so, it's such a delicate process to really create a relationship with somebody and have them feel comfortable enough to let you tell their story. Right, Alexis? I, I do think so. I think there's definitely a bedside manner because when we sometimes get suggestions from people on Instagram or people on Facebook encouraging us to cover a specific story, I politely tell them, if you know somebody connected and have them reach out, we don't necessarily want to penetrate somebody's life and dredge up mm-hmm. some horrible feelings that they were feeling. And it's like, Carrie, you know, um, our first degree guest for these BTK episodes, BTK's daughter said to me, you know, I didn't talk for 15 years after his arrest and I didn't fucking want to, and I wasn't going to, and like people reaching out to me was just disrespectful. It's like, it had to be on my terms. I had to be ready. And we right. were speaking specifically in reference to Joseph D'Angelo's daughters. Cause she was saying, if they ever reached out to me, I would love to have like camaraderie with them. Like these two perpetrators are so similar and it's, they were probably just as blindsided as me. And she's like, everyone should leave them alone. Like let them grieve, give them privacy. Because when she's like, she was physically like on the brink of a severe, like medical shock. Like you have to leave people alone. Like their whole world comes crashing down when they're this close to something this painful. And they assume a lot of that guilt that if they're, you know, if Carrie's dad cause this pain. Like she, she takes that on. She takes that guilt on because she's an empathetic, empathetic person, you know? So it's like, we have to just leave them alone because their whole world has ended. And that's how it is with our story. Like with our podcast, we're lucky enough that people reach out with their stories, but it is like, it's not slim pickings. We get a great deal of them. Um, but we really do have to pick with what, from what people submit to us. And I think that is the respectful way to handle it. Oh, absolutely. And like you were saying, too, about, um, you know, people needing to leave people like that alone that are connected to these, like, horrific circumstances. It's kind of like how you think about celebrities. When something happens to a celebrity and then everybody just can go and treat them like shit on the internet or whatever it is, it's like you forget people are human. And a situation like this, it's like you find out who BTK is, you find his family. I'm sure she got fucking harassed. And it's just this nightmare where it's like the humanity is kind of taken out of these people that are have nothing to do with it and are innocent themselves. And then to try to like pull things out of them on top of all of the fucking pain that they're going through is just like, ugh. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that people connected to not only victims of violent crimes, but people connected to perpetrators are also victims. If you, if a perpetrator is cunning en- enough to outsmart law enforcement for almost 40 years and they're certainly cunning enough to outsmart a child who is under their control anyway because he's the dad he's the man of the house he's sort of the dominant person like you you craft that entire life for your kid and um people doubt her and and um dennis raider's wife as to as to their ignorance as to what he was doing and i'm just like i can't believe you guys would think these two people would actually stand by and like 
be okay. It's just, it's just a wild thing to suggest. Like these people, right. we, we can't even imagine how manipulative and cunning sociopaths who are capable of murdering children are at manipulation. Oh, absolutely. Um, okay. Really, well, I, <laughs> I mean, even talked really at no. all. So no, you guys know, well, you know what? I'm just, I'm just picking my spots. What's your favorite, <laughs> um, what's your favorite episode out of, uh, out of all the episodes we've done, Billy. I thought Jonestown was, was really good. I know those are uh, multi-parters. Jonestown um, was so good. Well, we had Jim Jones Jr. <laughs> I know. And that's yeah. a, also we, I feel like Jonestown was not that far from when we, Ted Bundy was close to the beginning and then Jonestown was not that far from the beginning. And we had, I mean, could not have guess, had yeah. a closer first degree yeah, or that- interview. That was when we were in um, in the office in mm-hmm. Studio City. So we've for for those of you just to show you how the sausage is made a little bit. We were in a studio in I guess that's Beverly Hills, right? And then yeah. we went to a studio in Studio Excuse City. Me. Then we went to Alexis's apartment, and now since we're quarantining, we're in our own apartments. Yeah, right. the the recording process has evolved quite a lot, and it used to take us about six hours to record a single episode because we'd get so distracted and we'd be catching up order and we'd pizza. be gossiping. We'd order some chicken nuggets. We'd get some drinks. There was a beer tap at one of the places that we recorded at, so it was just like endless amounts of kegerator. Kegerator. I mean, what more could you ever want? Joke's getting rid of that. Should I buy it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? What do I do with it though? Just fill it, get a keg and fill it up. Yeah. I mean, we can I'm trying to buy a house soon. We could put it in my house. I should buy it and just keep it here for a while. Yeah, and we can figure Until out something to do with it. Okay. I mean, okay, cool. when could you not need a kegerator? I know. It's a good I should just get like a pony keg and throw it in there for when people come over. It's a good move. And it's kegs such are a good cheap. move. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Um, Alexis, what's your favorite episode? Um, I have a few. I mean, I loved Jamie Kloss. That's my most recent favorite. I loved yeah. Kim Goldman. I loved mm. Jody Arias. I really, really liked um I love John Getru. I, I mean, our first degree Barbara, she was one of the best interviews. I just think personality-wise and her her ability to articulate, especially a crime that happened in the 60s, just her, I just thought she was the most charismatic, amazing person. But honestly, I, BTK, I love too. I, I just but I, I love all of them. Um, you do love them. Yeah, I really like – I'm trying to think of some of the lesser-known cases that I, I love. But I don't know. I just – I, I love the, them all. I, I like the Casanova killer. I think – you know. Oh, yeah, that was good. We had the daughter of the one. victim. She was amazing. Her name was Crystal. Yeah. She was an amazing interview too. I just – I've really bonded. I loved um, Trial by Media, the Bob, Bob Ward case. Mm-hmm. I, I've become really good friends – with uh, Sarah and Mallory Ward, who were his daughters, who were fighting to free him. I loved Sandy Malgar. I Liz Malgar. I still talk to you all the time. We've all become very good friends with Tara Newell yeah. of Dirty John. Yeah. That was a great one. What are some um, other ones? That uh, Black Dahlia. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. They were fantastic. I see. They're all good, guys. I love that one. I think it's so special when we get to do an episode because usually Alexis does the interviews by herself and they're usually via phone because the people obviously don't live in LA and now we can't see anybody. But we've had a few episodes where we've been able to do the interview with all three of us in a room with the other people. And those, I mean, we did Kim Goldman's that way. We did Tara Newell's that way. We did Payne Lindsay's that way. We did Jared's that way. Our Crystal Kipper crossover with Justin from Generation Y. I loved the Crystal. Crystal Kipper episode was amazing too. I loved that one. Yeah, that episode was amazing. That was also when, so it was his and then uh, Jared's episode were around the same time. And that's also when our production value went really up because Jared started working on the podcast. Mm -hmm. We started getting some like really good like sound effects and good music transitions and stuff. Jared was amazing too. He he had, uh, of all of our interviewees, I'd say he sounded so sincere. Mm -hmm. I just remember he he is. And I remember recording that in my living room and watching him like he would like stare off pensively and like really think about what he was going to say. <laughs> I'm like, what a guy, what a guy. Look at this guy. He's such Have a guy. Have you ever guy. seen no. anyone more sincere in your entire life? No, he is the most sincere person I know. No, but his was interesting because not only because I just like love him because he's the best, but um, his 
what he had learned from his experience with that was so interesting because it was like Jared's first experience understanding what death and the concept of death is in your life. And I always like those first degrees that have kind of an interesting either perspective or their connection was really interesting. Like the Ted Bundy episode was Mm -hmm. phenomenal because you get to see a story that you know so much about if you're into true crime from like a completely new light. So I love when we kind of get those interesting perspectives. Me too. What was the name of the perpetrator? I'm blanking because I've had a crazy day, but uh, the one where my my great aunt's boyfriend is the family annihilator. And I saw him at like a reunion and he's the one who told me about it. What was his name? William something. Oh, William Bradford Bishop. Yeah. I loved that too. I'm like, because I just love... That is the essence of the podcast where it's like I go see my great aunt and her partner slash boyfriend. He's like, no, Alexis, I hear what you do. I know this thing. And I'm like, let me look this up. This is probably a little known whatever. And then I Google it. I'm like, oh, my God. It's like the most (laughs) prolific unsolved family annihilator case there is. That case, that that case was fucking crazy because it is so unknown. And so what happened to him? Absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. Like, and there's so many theories, the like pictures of they thought like he was seen in Belgium, and, like and South he was America. Seen yeah, and he was like a CIA operative. I'm like, this is really good. <laughs> no, it's fucking crazy. I just yeah. love. I mean, we've got to tell so many cool stories on this podcast, and I can't wait to see what the future holds for the rest of them. I I'm with you, and we want to say thank you to everybody for trusting us with their stories. And I we've never. I will say we've never had anyone be unhappy, want their story changed or taken down. Like we really have our guests backs as, and you know, we have integrity in this storytelling. We don't shame people. We don't, um, muddle the truth. We don't have an agenda. We just want to help people get their narrative and, you know, their story out there. Yeah. I think respect is like the number one thing. Exactly. All right. Well, all right. Well, Time of death, 1548. Beep, beep. Boop.